I'm Jim Juno, and this is Lights, Camera, Author. Each week, I talk to those who write books about movies, television, and Hollywood in general here on WRIRLP-FM. In her 2008 bestseller, Girls Like Us, Sheila Weller, with heart and a profound feeling for the times, gave us a surprisingly intimate portrait of three icons, Carol King, Joni Mitchell, and Carly Simon. Now in her new book, Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge, she turns her focus to one of the most loved, brilliant, and iconic plastic women of our time, the actress, writer, daughter, and mother, Carrie Fisher. Weller traces Fisher's life from her Hollywood royalty roots to her untimely and shattering death after Christmas 2016. Weller talked to me about her new book. Hello, Sheila. How are you doing tonight? Good, Jim. How are you? Really good, really good. Now, Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge. This is... This is a, a your I believe your seventh book, all altogether. Your eighth book altogether. Okay, but it follows in the trend that you have that you have written before, uh, with strong-willed women. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good way to put it. Yes. Yes, and I was wondering what led you on. What got you interested in in Carrie Fisher? Everybody asked me that. Well, mm-hmm. um, I was very uh, admiring of her postcards on the edge. I was very aware of her penny. And Carrie parties and how groovy they were. I loved her wit and her hauteur and her um, uh, personality. And I was very taken by the fact that she went through a lot of <clears throat> challenges, uh, bipolar disorder and inherited propensity to drug addiction. That's the way I'm putting it. And um, I, there's an echo there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up some feedback on, on your end. I don't know what to say. <laughs> let me, uh, hang on one second. Okay. Let me try. How's that? Is that any better? Well, I don't have it. Wouldn't have it right now. So. Oh, you do have it right, right now. Right now it's okay. Yeah. Right now it's okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's start over anyway, here. Yeah. Go ahead. We start over or what? Um, no. Let's just pick it up. Yeah. Okay. So I was admiring of her, and um, also she affected the um, the uh, kind of badass feminism of of. TV stars like Tina Fey and Amy Schumer, and you know the, the feminism that was coming into 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 vogue at the time. <clears throat> when she died, there was an outburst of um, of grief and awe and appreciation from so many different quarters. And uh, then, when the women's marches came about, young girls who were, weren't even born when the first Star Wars came out were lofting high Princess Leia posters, and it just came to me that um, this is somebody that had to had to be written about. She was a very, uh, you know, an incredibly juicy subject. People absolutely adored her, and they adored her for her honesty, among other things, her honesty, her wit, her friendship, and so I plunged in. And and being that she was, I mean, let's face it, she, she minced no words. If she liked you, no she, words. Yes, yes. She, she liked you, she loved you. If she didn't like you... She's she mailed things to you like a like a severed cow's tongue. I remember that story. Well, in the yes, book. <laughs> she was protecting her friend who was, you know, sexually uh, harassed. Of course, yes, and and I remember I remember like you were you were in the book and you were t- you mentioned you you didn't get to talk to her family firsthand, right? But you talked to a lot of her friends, and I was just wondering, were they really open? Were they were they welcoming? Very open. I mean, I, if somebody wasn't welcoming, I didn't talk to them. I didn't bug people and insist on talking. Um, now so, you, um, they were very open. The ones who talked 
and they, they wanted to protect her, and they, they loved her. Um, a few didn't have good experiences with her, and those were in the, there as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of it were situations that she would eventually outgrow, because I think there was definitely an arc to her journey that she became you know, mature and, and much more responsible and much more kind of soulful and um, you know, less, less brittle toward the end of her life. I mean, uh, there was a great deal of humanity that was always in her, but it was enriched toward the end of her life. But, uh, at the, um, but, but I talked to people who mostly really cared very deeply about her. I was going to ask you. Um, now you met. Now you you fully admit. I mean, you grew up like a block away from her. Oh well, they didn't live there that long, but there was a period of time when they lived a block mm-hmm. away from me. Yes. I was just wondering if if um, you ever had the chance to see her at all. I think with the the, the opening scene, one of the opening scenes with the movie magazine writer goes to her house. That was my mother. Oh, was it really? So I, yeah, it was. Yeah. So I did. I did um, meet her. No, I'm sorry. I didn't meet her. I met Debbie with my mother. Oh, you met Debbie Reynolds. Okay. Yeah. Now, for those of you listening who are completely unaware of, of Carrie Fisher, if you've lived in a cave or under a rock right. Right, for the past 30 years or so, Carrie Fisher was the daughter of Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. And she was also most famously most famously known for uh, Princess Leia. And right. now being a geek as I am, I knew all about that. But... Um, you know, you were not a Star Wars fan, were you? I was not. How did you know that? Did I say that? Mm, I don't oh. know. <laughs> I've done some research. You didn't get that much Star Wars in there. No, I was a fan of her writing. I loved Postcards on the Edge. I was a fan of her mm-hmm. of her personality, of her social criticism, of her personal criticism, of herself and, 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 and Hollywood and, and men and women. I wasn't a Star Wars fan. Mm-hmm. So you, you got that there was not that much Star Wars in the book. Is that it? That's right. And, well, a lot of people don't realize, looking back now, um, this is the last Star Wars question I'm going to ask because I could spend the whole show talking about it, but I'm Uh that big of a geek. But um, back in 1977, Star Wars was not Star Wars. I remember my I was in high school. I remember a teacher of mine saying, I've got a cousin out in San, uh, out in Los Angeles who was talking about this new movie coming out called Star War or Star Wars supposed to be pretty good. Um, but that, you know, that was something that was a chance role for her. I mean, uh, I mean, that was a big chance in her career because nobody knew who the what this movie was going to be. Right. They didn't. They they I mean, the. Steven Spielberg was a big believer in it, um, and I forget, and, and, and a few others were. Uh, was it Steven Spielberg? I have to go back and read my own book. George but, Lucas, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, one of the uh, studios that was funding it even even wanted to cut away from it, and the people that saw it at the beginning thought it was a silly, funny movie, and Carrie and her friends made fun of it. Then, at, at, well, she made fun of it when she was in it, um, and then when they saw it at the premiere, everything was different, um, and everyone was kind of rocked on their heels, and they knew what a big deal it was. Yes, and all of a sudden, now she became she became the uh, superstar, for want yes. of a better word, that we that we know her of today. Um, but she, you know, she was raised mainly by nannies, wasn't she? That's what struck me about the book, is that a lot of time her parents were away. Yes, well, she lived with her mother. You know, her parents divorced very early, and her father was really not around at all. Um, but, uh, 
uh, and her mother was in the old studio system where you worked all the time. Debbie Reynolds never, ever stopped working. So she was raised by nannies. I mean, A, that was kind of what happened in wealthy families or in busy families and um, in, in Beverly Hills and, and places like that. It wasn't, wasn't only uh, Beverly Hills. But it, it was not because her mother didn't love her. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, her mother was a Brownian Girl Scout leader. It was just that she was working all the time. That's right. That's what struck me about about Debbie Reynolds in your book is that she tried as much as she could, it seemed, to be a normal mother. She did. Yes, she did. And she was a normal young woman. I mean, she she was raised in great poverty in El Paso, Texas. Great, great, great poverty. And then came to Los Angeles with her parents. Wanted to be a gym teacher. Uh, very, very wholesome. Had a very intense um, Pentecostal religious background and um, was very frugal, uh, had very uh, very sensible parents who really knew what poverty was. So there was a, a dr- tremendous amount of normalcy in her. And the public related to that very positively. There was, a, a, you know, an adorable quality to her that was real that you couldn't make up. Um, very, you know, all-American, let's put it that way. That's right. She was America, uh, like all-American girl for many, yes. many years. And... Um, now the the thing that struck me was that you know Eddie a great deal has been said about about Elizabeth Taylor stealing Eddie Fisher away, but right. but near the end of near the end of her life I believe I was reading this that she received an apology from Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, not even near the end of her life, in the middle of her life. They no. all, um, oh Debbie or or, or Carrie. Uh, both. Both of them. Yes, they they bonded. I mean, actually Debbie and Elizabeth Taylor quite early on. And Carrie and Elizabeth Taylor quite early on, um, you know, they got over it. Yeah. <laughs> they just did. Let me ask you some. Let me ask you your. What kind of story surprised you in the book? I mean, I, I had several, but yeah. I, I. What was okay. What was your I'd favorite? Love to know what yours were? When people did did ask me what surprised me, the degree of her vulnerability surprised me. Um, the fact that, for example, during the postcards from the edge book tour she was as as witty as as the day is long at night but during the day according to the person who accompanied on the, her on the tour she broke down and she she had stage fright and she was kind of vomiting in the bathroom that's right in different yeah. hotels they were in so and the, the amount of stage fright she had before those las vegas shows her mother put her on and the london palladium show where she knocked him dead um there was a great deal of that there was just a tremendous amount of vulnerability a lot of it came from the fact that she was undiagnosed, you know, manic depressive slash bipolar. It used to be called manic depression, and mm-hmm. then it was, the name was changed. Um, so I would just say the, the vulnerability was, was surprising. The music at the start of today's show was the theme to the original Star Wars by Miko from 1977. You're listening to Lights, Camera, Author, recorded in the Vineland Road Studios for WRIR 97.3 FM. Today we're talking with Sheila Weller about her book, Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge. What struck me also, and you said that the, the stage fright seemed to continue up until the very, very end because on the night before or the day that she was supposed to do Graham Norton, she mm-hmm. was she was ill then. Well, that wasn't stage fright. That was really illness. Oh, that was no, really. It was, no, it was not stage fright. No. Oh, that was her. That was her final yeah, illness. Yeah, she loved going on TV shows and talking. That that was not stage fright. That was just feeling not up to it, wanting to make good to a friend. Yeah. Ah, okay. Not, not stage fright. No. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when she got her start. She was in a she was in a Ringo Starr 
uh, video. Yes, Ringo, yes. Yes, uh, 16, you're 16 and you're beautiful in That's, your mind. They sang it. Yeah, I talked to the producer of that or the director. Mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of producers, directors, and colleagues in movies we forget that she was in, like Drop Dead Fred and, um, and a play called Agnes of God, which was a very quality play, but it didn't, she didn't last in it very long. Um, and in some other movies that um, you know, we don't remember her in. Well, The Man with One Red Shoe. Man with red, red, red shoe, exactly. Yeah, with Tom Hanks. Yeah, and she did a lot of she did a lot of movies. Oh, I don't want to say a lot, but several movies with um with Dan Aykroyd. Yes, she did, and she was engaged to Dan Aykroyd. Yes, that's right. And tell me what happened with that. Well, they were um, John Belushi wanted them to go together <laughs> because she was kind of famous, and he wanted his best friend and co-star to have a famous girlfriend. And she was with Paul Simon at the time. Um, and they did a movie together, the Blues Brothers, all three of them. And uh, at one point, she was they were all eating in the trailer, and she was a little stoned, shall we say. <laughs> and she um, was choking on a, um, a Brussels sprout. <laughs> I guess she swallowed the Brussels sprout practically whole, which is kind of scary to think about. Yeah. And he gave her the Heimlich, Heimlich maneuver, essentially saved her life as... The producer um, of the of the movie, who I spoke to, said, and this story has been around too. It's, it's it's been reported in different forms, and they kind of fell in love. But it was a, an infatuation. It was it was intense, but it was brief. She said to a um, a Canadian interviewer whose show she was on quite a bit that she started speaking with a, with Canadian words like eh, you know, a a a. Sorry, excuse me. That's okay. Um, for a while, and. Um, uh, they had a little kind of a whirlwind engagement, got blood tests, exchanged rings, and then it kind of faded at the last minute, and she went back to Paul Simon. But they were engaged. And she actually married Paul Simon. She married Paul Simon, yes. And now also, um, and one of the things that has been, and you, you've been asked this question a lot because I've, I've been doing some research, and she knew the marriage was over when she had the ectopic uh, pregnancy. Yes, yes. Um, that's what I, yeah, I think it was several people told me that, that she had an ectopic pregnancy. He, for some reason or other, was not that, um, participatory in the hospital and it, it hurt her. Oh, I can imagine it would. Yeah. I mean, it, um, it really ruined the relationship from then on. Well, the, it didn't really ruin it because they did get divorced quickly, long relationship, short marriage, and then they went back to a relationship of one kind or another, um, Meaning, romance. You know, back to a, a you know relationship, relationship, friendship. He helped her a lot. Mm-hmm. He was in her life. She counted thirteen years. That's a long time. But as for the marriage, is what I was I was referring it was very to. Short. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah. Th- that kind of ruined the marriage, so to speak. Yes, I think she she got um, she got uh, the, she divorced him after that. Maybe it was impulsive. Were you able to get? Were you able to get? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I just said, but it was deeply felt. Yeah. Were you able to get hold of many? Um, well, I want to say many of her, of her co-stars, because um, in the book, you know, you do mention, you know, you do talk to her friends, mm-hmm. um, but it seemed like you know the Hollywood crowd, so to speak. I mean, I, it sounds like she gave great parties. She gave great parties. Well, you said co-stars and, and the Hollywood crowd; those are different things. Okay. I spoke to Mia Farrow. She was in uh, Hannah and her sisters with Mia. <laughs> Lee Grant, she was in Shampoo with Lee Grant. Elizabeth Ashley, she was in the play Hannah, I'm sorry, Agnes of God with Elizabeth Ashley. Yes. Um, uh, 
there were several others um, who, you know, were in movies with her that I that I spoke to, well known or not well known. And um, in terms of the parties, I spoke to people that went to went to her parties, and kind of, you know, got a picture of how great they were and how star-studded they were. And her um, uh, cook always served the, the the famous fried chicken that she was known for. See, that's making me hungry right now, you know? <laughs> yeah, I bet. You sound like you, you like fried chicken. <laughs> I could eat my weight in fried chicken, actually. Yeah, but, Marsha uh, Mason was another co-star yes. of Drop Dead Fred that I that I spoke to. So I did get done. Yeah. And also people, producers who she worked with, who she script doctored for, who wanted to put her in TV shows and she wouldn't do it, but they became friends or she said something really important to them that was meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um that's okay. why I remember. Um, I believe her name was Wendy uh, that she met Wendy with. Wendy Coat. Yes. yes. And she first thing she told her was that she'll never do a TV series. She did. Yes. And 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 Wendy said, "Why did you Why did you come here?" And she said, "Well, I had nothing better to do." And they kind of laughed. And then Wendy <laughs> and then Carrie gave Wendy a lot of really good advice. And see, that's a, that's something that people don't realize about Carrie Fisher is that yes, she was a she was a a great actress, and and you know we miss her and everything, but she she helped behind the scenes so much. Um, she did, yes, she was a a really great script doctor, one of the best that Hollywood ever had. People have said. What kind of? Uh, I just want to know. You know, did, first off, did you find out about Harrison Ford and her? Just actually, I, that that came from her book and yes. from some other people who talked about her, the worry that she had when she was when she was writing her, you know, when the book came out and did, was he, did he like it or not? Um, uh, you know, was he would it, would it offend him? Which she hadn't felt before. Um, so uh, it showed sort of the vulnerability to, at the end of her life. She hadn't had those feelings about. Um, other books she had written and other people she had written about. She, didn't, she definitely felt that way about him. She didn't seem to have a lot of regrets in her life. I mean, I'm sure there were. I'm sure there were some, but she, you know, she loved her daughter, Billy Lord. I mean, she oh, considered yes, her, yes. her 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 greatest accomplishment. Um, of course, yeah. You know, it, just, have you had any feedback from the family on this book? They they um, I I tried to get them to. I, I wrote a very respectful letter to their representative <clears throat> about a month into my work on it, my contract. And I got a very nice letter back saying check in with us later, which I did. And they didn't, you know, I didn't hear from them again. So I continued on and, and they have put out a statement that you probably saw where they they made it very clear that they didn't participate and that oh, yeah. was their feeling about it. And, it's their they loss. They didn't even know about it, but I, <laughs> I have a different story. But I, I will. Their, their story is their story. And okay. I respect them. That's fine, and that's their loss. You know that uh, they had their well, chance. I don't know if it's their loss. It's, it's, well. it's. They're the family, and they suffered greatly. You know, two two deaths in just a couple of days. So, um, I, I, I respect them. Yeah. And that leads me into my next uh, question: Is that you know again? Carrie Fisher died on December twenty seventh, I believe, two thousand sixteen, and then, and then Debbie Reynolds the next day, and um, you know you 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 mentioned in the book that Debbie just basically wanted to be with Carrie. That's what her that's, that's what her brother said. What, her brother, yes, that's what Todd Fisher, Debbie's son, and Carrie's brother said, and people who knew them felt that was true. I mean, she she had been sick for a couple of years very sick 
and um, she cared very much, worried very much about, about Carrie and said, and I put this twice in the book, if I could, I would suffer for her. That's how much she worried about her. So um, but I, I think w- when that happened, I mean, we see that with people. I think the bushes died close to one another. Mm-hmm. You just see that with people, that I'm ready to go. And, and, and that was a sense. But Debbie wasn't really surprised when she when she, Carrie did die. You mentioned in the book that she was expecting that call for decades. She was. Somebody very close to Debbie said that. Yeah, and I was just wondering, you know, so it wasn't a surprise. I guess I can't say it wasn't a shock because it was a shock to the world. Uh, you know, and I don't mean to dwell on this, but my goodness, I mean, she, you know, she had so many things. I mean, I remember when she came out as being diagnosed as bipolar. Yes. And she became one of the staunch advocates for... Absolutely. She was a destigmatizer. Very, very important with that. She said, I am mentally ill. I can say that. And when that ha- and then right after that, there was a magazine starting that hadn't ever had an issue. Nobody heard of it. It was a very niche magazine, very specialized, called um, BP Magazine. The entrepreneur who was starting it called her up cold and said, "Here's a magazine. We don't even have a you know we don't even have a, have a mock-up of it. It's just an idea. Will you be our cover, our cover girl, and will you be our our main story?" And she said yes without thinking twice. Wow. So um, she definitely wanted to and did wholeheartedly get into the um, position of destigmatizing uh, a very challenging situation that she was in. It has no cure, I mean, you can take different meds for it, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work, sometimes they start working and then they don't. Uh, but um, uh, she, she became an advocate and toward the end of her life wrote a, an advice column in The Guardian about um, dealing with it. And, you know, talk to a young man, very like a wonderful, almost mother figure, said, you, you're doing it better than I did. You, you found me out early. You finished high school. You're going to college. She was very supportive of young people that had it and, and older people. At Star Wars conventions, when she was supposed to just come sign autographs and go, if somebody said they, they were bipolar or had someone in their family who was, they would, um, uh, she would stop what she was doing, she would stop talking about the things she was supposed to talk about <laughs> and and talk to them about their situation again and again. And I remember she pulled, and she also pulled no punches against, against even herself when I remember somebody was criticizing her because her uh, her body was not the same as it was when she was oh, in. Oh, 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 yes, famous famous line in, in Wishful Drinking that I signed a contract that I had to, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh-huh. I had to continue to look like the girl in the metal bikini. She was weight-shamed and, and age-shamed, and particularly weight-shamed very much toward the end of her life. And um, I think when she did Wishful Drinking and talked about it both humorously and poignantly, um, it relieved a lot of women, older women or midlife women, let's say, who um, also uh, felt that way? And I remember and, her saying, oh, "Yeah, I remember her saying that you know the medicine helps me live my life, but your body goes to pot, or something like that." Yeah. And I'm just, you know, it just struck me that you know she's, I mean, she's a role model, and I don't think she ever intended to be. Well, that's those are the best kinds of role models, aren't they? Aren't they? <laughs> 
Tell me one more thing. Um, now, I remember reading another one, and this is in your book. She sent Marsha Clark. For those of you who remember Marsha Clark, she yes. was the prosecutor for the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Right. And she sent her flowers because she realized Clark had been thrust into this position of, of being a public figure. Yes. No, not just that. She was mm -hmm. she had child care problems. She was a single mother, divorced mother, and she um, had to plead, I'm coming late to court t tomorrow in front of Judge Ito, and that meant in front of the country because the whole trial was televised. And she left there thinking, oh, man, people are going to see this and think what a, you know, um, women can't do their, you know, be prosecutors. She really felt low and, and, and you know, taken down by, by having to, she felt humiliated by it. Right. And mm -hmm. the next morning, she, she came into the courtroom, and there was this beautiful bouquet of flowers. Carrie sent great flowers. And um, uh, the, the, uh, the remarks, and Marcia never told me exactly what they were, but she said the sentiment in the card was exactly what I needed. So later they would get to know each other, and Marcia would go to a couple of Carrie's parties, but then she had never met her, and... But Carrie just was very moved by it. She saw the sexism and the humiliation, and she responded. Wow. That is incredible. Well, Sheila, I tell you, I am really happy to be able to talk with you about this book. And I know it's going to be, I know it's, it's probably on the bestseller list right now, but you... Not really, but... Well, hope. it's getting there, yeah. We hope, I hope you buy it. <laughs> I hope your audience buys it and enjoys it. But you People, I, I am gratified that reviewers have all said... It is very sympathetic to her, which is imp was important to me because I was very honest about what she went through, and some of it was difficult. I mean, she she did take drugs. She was bipolar, so her life was co complicated. Uh, but I, I wanted to stay with the empathy all the way through, and I was very gratified that re the reviewers felt that way because the truth is so many people love her. And you have I – mean, I remember you mentioning to me that you have, I believe, an event coming up. On, uh, on December 9th? Oh, you know, I'm not sure if that's actually... Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. I'm not sure if that's <laughs> going to stay. There was going to be one in Los Angeles on December 9th, um, but we're still in the process of figuring that out. But thank you. And um, you can find me on Facebook. If, if we go ahead and do it, I will, I, will, I will definitely mention it on Facebook. It would be in Pasadena, California. Fantastic, yeah. Sheila Weller is on, on, on Facebook. The book is Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge. Sheila, thank and you. it's available on Amazon. It is available at Amazon, BN.com, and anywhere as books are sold, yeah. you can order it. Just go into a brick-and-mortar store and, and order it. Um, if right. you, and it's, you know, it's that Christmas time. This is make a great gift for those people who not only love Star Wars, but love strong women. People, people think it will be a good gift, so I, I hope they're right, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, thank you, Sheila. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. You can find more information about Sheila Weller and her book, Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge, at us.macmillan.com. Join me next time when I talk to Mark Vieira about the book, Adrian, A Lifetime of Glamour, Art, and High Fashion, here on WRIR 97.3 FM. For Lights, Camera, Author, I'm Jim Juno.